Today we are discussing the recent wave of terror attacks in Eretz Yisrael. It has been truly horrific. 19 people have been brutally murdered, Rahmanul Etzlan, in just the past three weeks alone. Many more in the past several months. Dozens injured. Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters. Hashem Yimkun to Mayhem. Joining us now, veteran journalist Rabin Yamin Rose. Rabin Yamin is editor-at-large at Mishpacha Magazine. He is a Middle East expert par excellence. Has amazing clarity in not just Middle East politics, virtually any other topic that I've heard you discuss. Benjamin, it is great to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you, Yaakov. My pleasure, as always. And uh, look, things have gotten, it is really our pleasure, our schluss, things have gotten out of control. And why is that? Can you just, very basic question, why has this wave of terror gotten so out of control? And how culpable is Prime Minister Bennett and his coalition, which of course includes the Arab parties, and other left-wing groups? So I think there are a couple of main reasons why the terror situation has gotten out of control again. Uh, first and foremost is because <clears throat> this is something that uh, different uh, Arab sectors have been planning for quite some time. Uh, you now have uh, a sort of a coalition, if you will, on their side between uh, the two Arab parties in the Knesset, uh, between uh, Hamas, between uh, Jordan, between Turkey, between, uh, I would uh, put Qatar in that group also. Uh, basically, you have factions in all of those places who are saying, ah, we think that Israel is weak right now, and we're going to try to take advantage of that as much as possible to uh, push our agenda. Of course, they're using uh, the famous uh, canard from the 1920s at the Mufti, of Jerusalem created, Al-Aqsa is in danger. Right. That's a rallying cry. And they're using that as a pretext to uh, uh, basically uh, launch violence and also uh, uh, a new political front against Israel. So that's the second part now is the political front where not only do you have uh, uh, one Arab party in the Knesset, but you have two Arab parties in the Knesset. You have the joint list, which has six seats, and then you have Ram, which is actually part of the coalition with four. So uh, if you will, the Arabs are feeling their power and uh, they're applying pressure on all fronts. But it sounds like you are connecting or linking this to the fact, you know, that that the Arabs do have a more than influence, just have an incredible amount of leverage when it comes to, to the Bennett coalition. Is that correct? Uh, being partners in the coalition, they certainly have leverage. Uh, so part of that also now uh, plays into uh, Bennett's weakness. Uh, there was almost no way to form a government a year ago without including the Arab party of Ram. Even uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was prepared to do that. So the fact that he didn't get to do it and then Bennett did, so Bennett's going to take the blame for that. However, uh, there was seemingly no other option other than go to a fifth election. And there was some thought at the time that perhaps Ram would uh, uh, be better citizens. Perhaps uh, they would follow the Haredi party's line and say, listen, we're not really interested in foreign affairs or politics so much. We just want uh, uh, we want budgets for our sector. And if you give us that, then basically we'll be good citizens. Now, in the case of the Haredim, that's proven to be true. The Haredim are good citizens. However, uh, Ram and uh, the Arab party has decided that uh, not only are they going to take the money, but uh, once they take the money, they're going to... Uh, uh, run with their agenda, which is basically to try to uh, weaken Israel. Right. And and understood. Great points. And I certainly understand the point you made about how Benjamin Netanyahu was prepared on his. end. now, of course, he uses it as a talking <clears throat> point 
uh, against Bennett, as we would expect him to do and say, oh, look, he's the one who partnered with the Arabs. And you're stepping in and saying, yeah, well, listen, you would have done that if you could have made that happen for your coalition. But you kind of lost it, that, that option to Bennett. But it's not like you weren't considering it. But can I just ask point blank? I mean, is Bennett afraid? Is Bennett intimidated? Is he worried that if he gets too tough on terror, that that will backfire in terms of the politics? I would say so. Uh, you can just take a look at what happened during the month of Ramadan in Yerushalayim, where, uh, again, the Arabs uh, from a variety of fronts, including Jordan, including Turkey, put a lot of pressure on uh, Israel. Again, uh, they used the old uh, Al-Aqsa's in danger uh, shtick, if you will, in order to... Uh, uh, yeah, the bogus pretense, which they've never needed as an excuse for terror attacks, but we'll use it when it's convenient. But yes, they will continue. always find a pretext, and uh, al is one of the time-honored ones. Again, it goes back 100 years to the days of uh, the Mufti of uh, Jerusalem, who basically uh, uh, learned from uh, uh, the Nazis uh, when you want to uh, uh, perfect propaganda. So he had uh, some very good teachers. So uh, there's no question that, uh, that Bennett is intimidated. And uh, not only that, but uh, there was news in the last day uh, that said that... Uh, uh, Jordan has made demands that they want more members of uh, <clears throat> the Waqf to be on Harbayit, on the Temple Mount. And it seems as if uh, the Bennett government has agreed to that. So uh, there's no better sign that they're under pressure and that they're giving into that pressure uh, than that. Wow. Now, if you could enlighten us in terms of the actual facts on the ground, sort of the security situation. And it seems like many of these attacks are somewhat preventable in the sense that many of these terrorists are living in the country illegally, even in the Palestinian territories illegally. Many are working in Israel without documentation, at least according to media reports. And that's something the government, you would think, could crack down on, should crack down on. There are breaches reportedly in the border wall. There are ISIS cells. I mean, now this is a whole to me, it's a whole new level, at least my understanding of terrorism in Israel, because it's always been Hamas Fatah or Islamic Jihad, and now we have ISIS cells. And uh, do you believe that, just practically speaking, security forces can be doing so much more to prevent these attacks? They certainly can do more to prevent the attacks, but they also need uh, much more resources as well. Uh, something that I've reported on uh, over the past few months is that uh, we have, basically we have a new situation now, because, it, again, in addition to all the external threats that Israel faces, and all the pressure that's placed on Israel in that regard, uh, you have uh, the Arabs who are gaining political strength, the, the Arabs who live inside of Israel. And just for the sake of uh, argument, I'll include uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, Hamas in that also, because they're all basically living in uh, lands that are part of uh, the borders of Eretz Israel, according to the Torah. So uh, this, uh, this makes it extremely difficult, uh, much harder than ever. Uh, because you've got uh, a stronger, what they call, fifth column, where uh, not only does Israel have to worry about Hamas and uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, Hezbollah and Iran, but now they have to worry about the Arabs who are living within Israel as well. And again, right. I include uh, uh, Israeli Arabs, and I include uh, Arabs from the Palestinian Authority. Again, not to say they're all terrorists. That's not so by any stretch of the imagination. But sure. it really doesn't matter, even if 15% uh, of them uh, are radical. Uh, that's still uh, a few hundred thousand people. 
And uh, they're the ones who are in control of the agenda. So uh, it really doesn't matter that uh, 85% are peaceful and want to be good citizens. The people who are running the show are not peaceful and they're not good citizens. So uh, that makes it very difficult. So really, we're, we're facing a brand new security situation. Uh, there's been talk about a civilian uh, National Guard because Israel doesn't have a National Guard per se, like America does. You, you can't just roll out the army into cities here and uh, start patrolling. We do have what's called a Mishmar Hagavul, border patrol, but uh, their forces are limited. Uh, the police here in Israel are notoriously undermanned and uh, underpaid, and I would also say very poorly managed as well. Uh, the police chiefs uh, in the recent past are generally political appointees, and they're looking out more, I think, for their uh, own uh, political well-being and the uh, future than uh, actually trying to police. And then you've got uh, the army, which really... Uh, needs to start employing much more sophisticated means in order to uh, uh, monitor uh, the social networks and the social media to look for uh, people who uh, uh, might be trying to uh, break into Israel, so to speak, and to, uh, and to commit crimes. And then we also have to be more vigil uh, internally vigilant. Uh, unfortunately, a very sad story that came out is that uh, the people who were murdered in Elad included a taxi driver who actually a Jewish taxi driver who drove the two yeah. terrorists into the city and they ended up perpetrating their attack. So, uh, you know, you alluded to and that. Killed the driver, of about, yes. And, uh, and that also includes people who, uh, work here illegally. And of course there's a big temptation, especially for Kaplanim, for people in the construction industry to hire cheap labor and they'll uh, pick people up uh, literally off the street. You know, I, I can drive a few blocks. I, I live not far from the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, and I can drive uh, a half a mile away or a mile away, let's say, to in the direction of Kever Rachel. And uh, if you make a right turn to go to, instead of going to Kever Rachel, you make a right turn to go to what they call the Kvish Amin Harot or the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the road that leads to uh, Beitar and uh, Gush Etzion, Efrat, etc. So, at any given morning at 7, 7.30, there were dozens, sometimes hundreds of Arabs that are waiting to get picked up by Kaplanim to do construction work here. And, uh, you know, they're supposed to check their identification, but do they? You know, you're a Kaplan, you need uh, 10 more bodies to uh, come and build uh, your house or your apartment for you. So you don't always check who you're uh, hiring. And uh, some of these people, even they stay in the buildings overnight, uh, the construction workers. So... You might have uh, hundreds of people in uh, in Israel overnight who were uh, not only illegal but uh, armed and dangerous. Right, that's interesting. It's actually terrifying because I mean, obviously, that's an issue in the United States as well in terms of uh, you know companies hiring illegals, not checking the documentation, and obviously, that's that that is a security concern on a level, but it nowhere near compares to to the situation you're describing, where you can literally be hiring a terrorist to, to do some cheap labor contracting work. So that is terrifying. It's also interesting, the point you made, I had never really thought about it, how you know Israel is kind of geared toward uh, foreign enemies. So, it, you know, the security has always been about the IDF and has always been about the military. And you're saying, and I did see those reports about Bennett calling for some kind of National Guard, but the the, the domestic security is is not nearly as, I guess, sophisticated and robust because it hasn't been this sort of issue as in terms of the domestic uh, danger that is being the threat that's being posed currently. Also, Yaakov, it's uh, much more difficult in Israel still to get a gun license than it is in America. 
uh, you have to go through a long process, although uh, there's some talk about uh, fast-tracking the process and reforms to allow people to uh, uh, get weapons. And I think that's something that we are going to see happen. I think we're going to see uh, more citizens, more Jewish citizens applying for gun permits and carrying weapons. And uh, that's something that also might be uh, necessary as uh, as time goes on. Even though, I mean... Don't former soldiers, am I correct about this, former soldiers do carry guns or have the right to carry guns or is that not so simple? No, it's not uh, It's not automatic at all. Uh, basically, the, the gun control uh, process here, the way it's worked up until now, is uh, if you're an ordinary citizen and if you want a gun, so you've got to apply to uh, the Ministry of Interior for a permit. You have to fill out paperwork and uh, basically you have to prove that you have a need. So what does that mean? That's... Uh, that can be rather uh, slippery, but you know, if you live, let's say, in a border area uh, near uh, Arab villages or uh, uh, near the Green Line, so that would qualify as someone who has proven that they have a need. Uh, even, let's say, if you're a property appraiser, let's say, and you're traveling all over the country to appraise different properties, so uh, they'll be lenient and they'll say, okay, you know, you never know where this person is going to be asked to appraise a property, so he's going to need a gun. But if you're the regular average citizen, you're an accountant who works in Tel Aviv or a, uh, a lawyer in Yerushalayim, uh, it's much, much harder to get a gun permit. Even if you apply and you can prove uh, that you have a need, uh, you have to take uh, shooting lessons. And even once you take shooting lessons, then you have to pass a, a, a target practice test at the end. And once you do that, uh, they'll let you know what kind of gun you can have. And uh, they even uh, they even control uh, the type of ammunition that you're allowed. They'll give you a certain amount of bullets. And uh, every year or two, they might ask you to uh, account for any bullets you might have used. In other words, you'll have to bring your clip back. And if there's anything missing, they're going to say, OK, uh, where are they? Uh, if you leave the country, you're supposed to uh, deposit your gun for safekeeping with the authorities and then come and collect it when you get it back. So uh, there, there's a lot of rules and uh, it's not so simple. It's not, like, uh, it, it's not like in Kentucky where you can uh, <laughs> you know, go into a Walmart and, uh, you know, pick up a gun off the shelf and, uh, and then maybe come back and pick it up a couple of days later. Right, which I think is the impression some people have about Israel, but that actually is very interesting. I, I will get soon to the some questions about the, co- the coalition and the Knesset, but a couple more on the, the security issue. And I actually want to ask you about American politics and how much that relates because I would say President Biden has been, if not hostile toward Israel, unfriendly. And contrast to Trump, President Trump defunded the Palestinians, um, where we were sending hundreds of millions of dollars each year. And of course, that was used to pay stipends for terrorists, or at least some of that money. Then they passed the Taylor Force Act while Trump was president. Meanwhile, Biden, not only has he restored funding to the Palestinians, but uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, not, not Anthony Blinken, I should say the uh, the ambassador, the ambassador, or is it Blinken? One of them. The U.S. officials will not step foot in West Bank settlements. That is current uh, U.S. policy under Biden. Now we have this breaking news that the new press secretary is openly anti-Israel. She's accused Israel of war crimes and has supported a boycott on APAC. So what are your thoughts, number one, on you know, all of that on Biden's sentiments toward Israel. And has that impacted in a practical way? Has that kind of bolstered the Palestinians ability to carry out terror attacks? 
I think, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's bolstered their ability to uh, carry out terror attacks. What it has done is it uh, gives them a, a bigger feeling of impunity uh, because they figure that, uh, and again, Israel is always in this position that uh, if Israel, so to speak, overreacts or if they uh, do extra judicial executions, as they like to call them, so that uh, eventually the uh, international community, including the United States, is going to come down hard on Israel. So when the Arabs know that basically if Israel goes too far to defend itself, that uh, they're going to face uh, tremendous criticism, uh, maybe even uh, claims that uh, certain Israelis should be uh, arrested and tried for war crimes. So it emboldens them to uh, to do what uh, they feel they can get away with. So uh, the fact that the U.S. Uh, administration under Biden is uh, acting in this way, uh, certainly, I think, emboldens uh, the Arabs. Uh, I don't know that that's America's intention at all, but that's how it, how it comes out. Uh, but the worst part is basically the way Israel reacts, because the Bennett government has done pretty much uh, in parallel to what the Biden administration has done. The Biden administration right. came in and said, uh, whatever Trump did was bad, was wrong, we're going to reverse it. And the Bennett government, even though uh, Bennett ran as a right winger, he uh, basically uh, ran against Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, he's trying to reverse everything Netanyahu did as well. So uh, while Netanyahu realized what you were saying, that uh, there are a lot of people uh, in American politics today, especially progressive Democrats, who are hostile to Israel's interests. And uh, unfortunately, that includes some of our, uh, our, our fellow Jews who yeah. uh, you know, think they know better uh, what's good for Israel, uh, but they really don't. And, uh, well, Netanyahu realized that uh, it's a waste of time to try to appease them. They're not going to change their minds. Bennett uh, and Lapid is basically taking the position that if we're just nicer, if we're just softer, and uh, if we're more, uh, uh, we make ourselves more appealing to uh, the Democrats and to the progressives, they like us more and uh, things will go better for us. And uh, we're, we're seeing that uh, that's not true because basically the more you try to appease uh, uh, these segments, uh, the more demands they have. And uh, they say, well, thank you very much. You know, we appreciate the concessions you made. Now, uh, uh, what's your next concession? Exactly. And and all they want is more and more. They're never satisfied and they'll keep condemning. And on that note, and this is the final question on this topic, I was just about to ask you and you segued into it perfectly. I was curious if you saw Jonathan Pollard wrote really a scathing op-ed in several days ago in the Jerusalem Post and he made a lot of the points that you were just alluding to about how, you know, the how apologetic and how, how soft uh, the current government is. Uh, did you happen to see that op-ed? I'm going to read you some quotes here in a moment. Uh, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, what you're probably aware, as I've written in the past, uh, I actually have a very good relationship with Jonathan Pollard. Oh, really? Friend. Yes. Uh, I, I visited him in America the year he got out of prison, and uh, that's wow. when we first made the connection. Uh, we kept up ever since. Uh, we're and uh, I would say we're good friends today. Uh, uh, I you know I still keep uh, I keep it off the record because uh, of a variety of reasons, especially for his own welfare. But uh, I I was aware of the article in advance, and uh, I also read it in advance of publication, and uh, not only. Uh, was there an article that you read uh, that was uh, published in uh, the Jerusalem Post? But yesterday, more or less the same article with a few tweaks was the headline story on Yediot in the Hebrew language edition. Oh, I did. And, and that really made a big fuss because uh, 
again, as widely read as the Jerusalem Post is, Idiot Achronot is uh, the second largest uh, daily sure. after Yisrael Hayom here in Israel. And uh, they made it Banner Headlines top story, and it created uh, uh, quite a rush, quite a fuss. And uh, I, you know, I, yeah, he's I would agree very with strong. The- I mean, his attack, I mean, just a, a quick quote here. We're suffering on account of a group of intellectually challenged political and judicial elites who have an infinite capacity to tolerate the suffering of our citizens while insinuating that we are somehow responsible for all the violence. And he said, I'm waiting for a leader who will put the fear of God in our enemies. Better yet, I'm waiting for a leader who will wipe our enemies off the face of the earth once and for all. So he didn't pull any punches there. Well, we'll have to probably wait for Mashiach Ben David uh, to do that. But uh, yeah, uh, in, un- until that day uh, comes, uh, we have to uh, we have to do our hishtadlut. We have to put in our effort. And we have to do the most we can uh, uh, for our own security. So you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, the sentiment that uh, Jonathan Pollard expressed is something that a lot of people feel right now. Uh, I think that he uh, he is certainly in a unique position to express that, considering what he went through for uh, 30, 35 years. Right. And uh, people are uh, people are listening to him. He's uh, he has a voice here and uh, people are very interested in uh, in what he has to say. Oh, that's what I was wondering. OK, which which could be disastrous. And this will segue us into the next part of the conversation could be disastrous for for Naftali Bennett, because if Pollard is basically going to point to finger, you know, Bennett and Lapid. And uh, say, listen, you're the enemies. You're too soft. You're really throwing the Israeli people under the bus. And if if, if people if, if that's going to evoke a response, I mean, that could like have a major, major shift uh, in public opinion. Is that is that accurate? It already has. Wow. Yeah. Tell, tell us more. So uh, yeah, I think there was a poll that came out that uh, 66% of the Israeli public feel that the government isn't doing an adequate job in uh, uh, protecting us security-wise. Wow. Okay, obviously that's big. So then getting into the actual specifics of the, uh, of the coalition, we all know, of course, about uh, the big uh, resignation of uh, Knesset Minister Silman a couple of weeks ago. Obviously that was a, a huge shakeup. And honestly, to be totally transparent, a lot of Americans who have trouble following, maybe even some Israelis, but who have trouble following the Knesset system, you know, we were confused because, okay, so he lost his majority. Well, if he lost his majority, then shouldn't that lead to new elections? Which, of course, in Israel, it's like another another week, another round of elections. But obviously not. Obviously, the coalition is still technically intact, extremely shaky, which gave, of course, the, you know, the Arab parties even more leverage. So... Can you describe a little bit of, you know, what the kind obviously the Knesset just reopened this week. So um, where do things stand right now? And I'm curious about your prediction, because anytime I've ever spoken with you, I find that your predictions as far as where the Knesset heads are, are spot on. Yaakov, you firstly, you shouldn't feel bad about being confused because uh, so are most Israelis. In fact, I spent uh, I spent uh, quite some time just making uh, some different notes and uh uh, different possible combinations about what could possibly happen in the government. Just it, to, it's like a bracket. It's sorry. It, it's like it's like a March Madness bracket, you know, of like the the uh, you know when they have like a sporting event, like you know, like a like a, a competition where they have a bunch of different teams and and a bunch of different rounds. That's how it feels to me. It's uh, much more confusing even than that. But uh, <laughs> uh, what happens right now is just starting with your first point. Uh, yes, the coalition is down to 60 members, so they don't have a majority anymore. There's 120 seats in the Knesset. 
So the Knesset is basically 60 in the coalition and 60 out of the coalition. So while they wouldn't be able to pass any uh, controversial legislation uh, without a 61st vote, uh, they can still hang in there because just like you need 61 for a majority, so you also need 61 to either vote to disperse the Knesset or to have what's called a constructive uh, vote of no confidence. Uh, what that means uh, by constructive vote of no confidence is that not only would you get 61 people to vote no confidence in the government, but those same 61 people would offer themselves up as the new government and say exactly who they want the prime minister to be. Now, if the opposition could do that, and I would say there's maybe a 10% chance of that happening, no more. So that's my first prediction. <laughs> then uh, you could get a new government without elections. Uh, I'm going to explain why uh, that's uh, probably not possible yes, shortly. Okay. Uh, th the next possibility would be that uh, Bennett just decides, you know something, I can't govern like this. And I have confidence that if there's another election, I'm going to still win in some way, shape or form. And therefore, uh, he will say that I want to disperse the Knesset also. And if you have the coalition joining with the opposition to vote to disperse the Knesset, then we'll have elections and probably sometime around uh, uh, the Chagim this year. I think that's probably more likely to happen. I, I would put uh, I would give that a 60 percent chance. And uh, I would give, as I said, a 10% chance of, of a constructive no-confidence motion where Netanyahu could come back in without an election. And I'd say 30% chance that uh, the Bennett government somehow manages to hang on for at least a, a few more months. Interesting. So, so, so what exactly is the timeline, I guess? And, I, I, you know, I, I mean, how does it play up, let's say, in the 60% scenario? Like, how does it all play out? Well, in the 60% scenario that there's new elections, so again, what would happen is uh, Bennett will just decide that, listen, I can't accomplish anything with this uh, current configuration. Uh, so uh, he would say, I want to disperse the Knesset. The Knesset would take a vote. That would probably happen with the, uh, that could all happen within a two to three week period from the time that Bennett would decide to initiate that. And uh, that being the case, then you would have elections, let's say, three months after that. So you'd be looking at elections about four months from now. OK, uh, that's uh, that's one option. Uh, again, the second option is the constructive vote of no confidence, where uh, the opposition manages to get 61 people who say, I'm going to vote no confidence in this government. I'm, and I'm going to vote, let's say, for the Likud to come back in with Netanyahu as the head. Now, that's complicated. And I'm going to I'm going to run through some numbers now. I, I know that. Numbers don't always work well. If I had a chart in the background, uh, I mean, I, I do have something written out, but I don't know that uh, anyone can uh, can read it on okay. the screen. Uh, that's fine. Well, what I did is I broke up. Now, everyone has their own configuration. I, I broke up in the Knesset actually into six different factions, and I'm going to explain why. So to me, you have the right. You have what I call swing votes. You have center left, left, Arabs and wild cards. Those are your six factions. Makes sense. So among the right, I only count 45 solid seats. The Likud, which has 30, Shas, which has nine, and the religious Zionists, which are uh, run by Bezalel Smotrich, who has six. Now, you might ask me, well, what about UTJ? Right. So yeah. there's been reports in the last couple of days that there's a possibility that uh, Bennett might dump Rom, the Arab party, and that UTJ might step in instead. Yeah, I saw that. Oh, that's interesting. 
It's, uh, I don't consider that very possible. Uh, according to reporting I saw from uh, Moti Tuchfeld of uh, uh, Yisrael Hayom, who's uh, very well connected, he says if it were up to uh, Moshe Gaffney, it probably would have happened already, but uh, there's internal opposition. Uh, Yitzhak Pindris is supposedly against that, Mayor Porish is against it. I'm sure there are others who are against it also. And uh, I don't think that uh, is likely to happen, but it is a possibility. So that's why instead of like the block of 52 that you always had, which was the pro-Netanyahu force, that's potentially down to 45. Now, let's say UTJ says, you know something, we're going to stick with Shas, we're going to stick with the religious Zionists, we're sticking with Netanyahu. So let's say you do get to 52. So you still need nine other people who will vote with you in order to uh, disband the Knesset and form a different government. So that's where the wild cards come in. You have uh, Edith Silman and uh, uh, Amichai Chikli. So that could get you potentially to 54. So 54 is well short of 61. Right. So where do you get to 61? Let's say Gidon Sar says, you know something? Uh, I don't think I have much of a chance to win if there's another election. So I prefer to stay with my six seats in this Knesset. And I'll go back to Netanyahu. Uh, crawling back, you might say, but uh, there's two <laughs> problems with that. Number one, even with New Hope, you're still only up to 60. And number two, Gidon Sar is not going to uh, crawl back. Uh, <laughs> what he would like to see happen is that he's, he already said that, not publicly, but he basically indicated that uh, he would come back to the right wing if Netanyahu agrees to only serve for a few months just to get a new government going, and then Netanyahu would accept a plea bargain, which I don't even know is on the table anymore, uh, and then he would agree to leave politics. Now, that's just not going to happen. Netanyahu is not going to do that, and the Likud isn't going to force him out. Yeah. So there's no hope with new hope, if you will, (laughs) Uh, which basically leaves uh, one possibility for that constructive uh, no confidence. Again, that UTJ stays with the right-wing bloc, and that somehow they can swing blue and white, Benny Gantz's eight votes over to their side. And if you do that, then basically uh, you've got uh, 52. Even then, you've only got 60. uh, But with Sulman and Chickley, you could have 62. Right. So that's how that could happen. Uh, Now, what's the likelihood of that happening? I would also say maybe 10%, because uh, Gantz doesn't trust Netanyahu. He still feels cheated from the last time uh, they were in a coalition. Well, well, yeah, the the rotation... Prime ministership that never actually happened. It only went one direction. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I don't think, uh, look, Gantz thinks he should be prime minister. Again, he's got eight seats. I don't see why Gantz with eight seats is any better than Bennett with the seven seats that he won in the last election. To me, he has no more right to be prime minister than uh, right. than, than anyone else with eight seats. And not only that, but uh, I'll just offer my own uh, thought here that uh, you know, to me, Benny Gantz is uh, is part of the very old time uh, failed uh, security system. You know, Gantz is uh, basically a lifetime IDF soldier. Uh, I don't uh, I don't take anything away from him. I uh, I credit him with the fact that uh, you know only uh, the Rabona Shalom knows how many times he's risked his life uh, uh, for uh, for Am Yisrael and for the state of Israel, but. Uh, Basically, you have a defense doctrine in Israel that uh, that is failing. As I mentioned earlier, you have all sorts of new threats coming from many different directions. And uh, if Benny Gantz doesn't become prime minister, but even would stay as defense minister, 
I don't think you're going to see a much better security situation than what we have now, even if he's in a more right wing government, because he's right. just, part, again, to me, of a uh, of a defense doctrine that's old and uh, that's not going to work anymore, considering uh, the very different uh, types of threats that we face now. I guess my and my final question, and thank you for breaking that all down. I mean, I really do have much, 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 much better understanding. And you made it all very, very clear, complicated situation. Much simpler. But in the scenario where I guess you're saying Bennett kind of makes the calculation and calls for new elections because you know he realizes how shaky his current coalition is. Isn't that a major risk for him, considering how, I guess, unpopular he is or at least how much how little faith people have in him in terms of the security situation and the terror situation? So doesn't he stand to lose a lot more than he stands to gain? That's a good question. It's uh, it's definitely a risk for him. There's no question about it. Uh, something that I wrote uh, a little more than a year ago when he first uh, became prime minister is that everyone felt that his government was illegitimate. He only had seven seats, which is now down to five with uh, Silman and Chickley out. Uh, one of the things I pointed out at the time is that uh, they're selling him a little bit too short because once you become prime minister, you have a chance of gaining support. So Bennett might feel that, you know, something, things look bad right now, but if we have a new election, I have a chance to remake myself and uh, gain some popular support. Uh, There was even a a poll that came out two days ago that showed Yamina winning eight seats in the next election instead of uh, the seven that I have now. Mm. So he might feel that uh, as long as he can continue to deny uh, the right wing uh, 60 seats, that he has as good a chance to... uh, Uh, to win again, and maybe even with a couple more seats than he had last time. Now, I have to mention a couple of other uh, wild cards. Sure. As far as that's concerned. Uh, Firstly, uh, other options is that uh, Yamina, with the five seats they have left, uh, you might have uh, Ayala Chakade, Ayub Kara, and Nir Orbach forming their own party, which they're allowed to do. Uh, The law in the the Knesset is, is that if you have a minimum of three MKs from one party, they can break away and form another faction, and then they can become a new party, and then they're eligible to run in the next election. So you could see a brand new party with Shakade, Kara, and Orbach. Uh, now, that's something that Amichai Chikli right now can't do because he's been declared a defector. And when you're declared a defector, so you're not allowed to run in the next election on your own. Interesting. So, he kind of painted himself into a corner that way, but there is that option that Yamina would break apart entirely. Now, if they did, so there's also been a report that uh, the two remaining MKs in Yamina, which would be, of course, Naftali Bennett and uh, and uh, Kahana, Matan Kahana, they would actually go to Yeshatit and join uh, Yair Lapid's yeah, party. Wow. It sounds a little wild and far-fetched uh, yeah. that someone who was as right-wing as Bennett would join with uh, Yari Lapid, but uh, if there's no place for him to go, uh, then he could say, you know something, I'm not going to run as Yamina anymore. I'm going to run as uh, uh, Anya Shati, and maybe Lapid would probably have to head the ticket, or perhaps uh, he would uh, allow Bennett to head the ticket for some strange reason. (laughs) And uh, then all of a sudden, Bennett would be, uh, you know, head of Yeshati, and uh, that's a party that has uh, 17 seats in the Knesset right now. So that's, it could be an entirely new ball game for Naftali Bennett. That's an interesting scenario. Wow. <laughs> and even if he's not number one, even if Lapid stays on top of the ticket, but Bennett becomes number two in Yeshatid. So 
know, you've got like the two-headed uh, monster, so to speak, at uh, at the head of that party, and then right. that would be an entirely new uh, uh, political configuration. Here. Right, and then in that scenario, Lapid could end up as prime minister. He could end up as prime minister. Uh, Yeshatid could end up uh, uh, with uh, with over twenty seats, and uh, if, right. if they ever wow. got over twenty seats, then it really doesn't matter what the Likud does, even if the Likud gets uh, thirty six, as some polls predict. Uh, the real right wing is not going to get to uh, a 61 seat. So, right. uh, you know, if you ask me uh, uh, for another prediction, I would say that uh, we're in for uh, quite a bit more uh, turmoil in uh, the months ahead, if Amazing. not uh, years ahead. Amazing. OK, we'll leave it at that. And I Hashem, hope to explore that with you uh, as uh, things unfold. All right. Benjamin Rose. I mean, this has been fascinating as always. I mean, really, really just your amazing clarity, eloquence. I mean, you, you just you break it down in such a clear, simple, eloquent way and, and also unique insights, things that I do not hear anywhere else. You know, and, and as you said, I think a lot of people, even the people who are analyzing and, and commenting, a lot of the pundits probably don't have as clear perspective. So Benjamin Rose, editor at large of Mishpacha magazine. Thank you so much, as always. Yonko, thank you.